Welcome to the Babelry. Working, parenting, playing, voting, advocating, and creating as women. If you were a landscape, what landscape would you be? This is your host, Suki Wessling. I have always walked. As a child living on the edge of a Midwestern town, I walked alone in the woods behind our house, making up stories. On summer evenings when the heat waned, I walked our dirt road with my family, our dogs, and sometimes a cat or two trailing behind. As a teenager, though, I ran. At that time, it was unusual for a girl to run alone on country lanes. Snarling curs rushed out from yards, and men catcalled from pickup trucks and souped-up muscle cars. But I ran. It wasn't until I went off to college that I learned that women shouldn't be alone on the streets and that I should be fearful. But I continued to run. Eventually, my joints slowed me to a walk. And I do walk on the streets of my neighborhood, in the redwood forest behind our house, on the beach. And everywhere, I see other women walking alone. I'm a nature walker. Over the decades, necessity has pulled us further and further from our source. Most of us now make our livelihoods unconnected to nature and live removed from her. Our separation from nature has developed a need that earlier generations didn't have. When people lived close to nature and worked there too, a relationship with the earth was a part of life even if it wasn't easy. The longer a person is away from the earth, the greater the call may be to return, even if, like me, you're numb to the craving until you're not. I love talking to writer and teacher Patrice Vecchioni about pretty much anything. So when I invited her to come talk to me, we had to decide on a topic. How about women walking, she asked. Simple, direct, yet wide open. I have become a completely blank slate, a person who forgot why she came here. I found writer Tanya Romanoff through a web search, and then we bonded over coffee when by chance she was driving through my bit of the coast. I was intrigued by the idea of a walking counterpart, Tanya's city to Patrice's country. My mind fills with stories, both mine and the city's, as I climb. In the conversation that follows, you'll hear the meanderings of three women who love to walk in their environments, at home, and wherever they happen to be. Insight follows. Listen in. Hi, my name is Patrice Vecchioni. I'm a Monterey author, artist, and teacher, and a few years back, I wrote a book about walking called Step Into Nature, Nurturing Imagination and Spirit in Everyday Life. Hi, my name is Tanya Romanoff, and a few years ago, I wrote a book called San Francisco Pilgrimage. It was during COVID when I could not travel around the world as I usually do, so I traveled my beloved city. Patrice, why do you walk? 
I walk as much for my mental, my emotional health as I do for my physical health. Walking is a way I steady myself and um, I need to be in the natural world where the views extend far beyond walls or buildings to feel a sense of being in relationship with the earth. And have you always felt this way about walking or did you feel that you... No, (laughs) not at all. Not at all. So I was not a mover as a child. I was a very sedentary child. All I needed was a book or a piece of paper and some crayons and I was quite content. If I never went outside, it was fine with me. Um, When I got into my early 30s, I started riding a bike and I got really into riding distance. Um, when I turned 50, I rode 100 miles. I did it a couple of times by myself. And then I couldn't ride a bike anymore. I, it, was, um, it was too hard on, on, on my neck. But, but when I was riding, I wrote much of a book, my book called Writing in the Spiritual Life. I wrote it in my head while I was riding the bike. And so I began to recognize a relationship then between creativity and exercise and endorphins and movement and um, breathing hard and being away from a computer, away from, you know, anything that that would draw me out of, of creativity. Um, I never had an accident except when somebody, I collided with somebody. So I wasn't like spacing out out there. Um, But uh, then when I couldn't ride anymore, it was like, well, what am I going to do? Well, okay, I'm going to have to walk. And I thought, oh, darn, I have to walk. It's terrible. And it, it has been a huge, huge gift to, to walk. I, I, I walk mostly alone and, um, I now have a serious foot injury. I'm having surgery, um, soon and my walking has been greatly curtailed. And at a certain point during this curtailment, I, I hit a deep depression and I've never experienced depression before. So, um, yeah, no, I haven't always been a walker, but I'm I'm really an addict now. <laughs> and Tanya, why do you walk? I walk because it gives me great joy. I just feel a connection to the world when I'm out walking. I've walked most of my life as a younger woman. I trekked in the Himalayas. I climbed Mount Kenya. I was out in nature all the time. And now I have taken to walking in the city. And I love that just as much, but it feels quite different. Both are deeply satisfying and both are today part of my writing, my thinking, just a vibrant part of my life. So Tanya, I'll I'll shoot this to you first, although Patrice introduced the subject. I wanted to follow up on what Patrice said about writing a book in her head um, and start by saying that when I took my walk the other day, I got back home and realized I couldn't remember how far I had gone because I live on a, a dead end road. So my when I road walk, 
my walk is out and back. There's a couple of little loops I can take, but it's basically out and back for most of it. And I really, that really struck a, a thought in me when Patrice said that, because I also write in my head. What do you do in your head when you walk? Well, it's very interesting. I used to write in my head, but I no longer do that because now I've discovered that I have a phone that I can talk to. <laughs> and when I talk to my phone, it records everything I say. And so I now write when I walk. And it's interesting because it's actually much more immediate. And it feels like my writing is now the same as my voice. And I love that. That's really interesting because, yeah, because I've, I've also dictated some, but it's, it is completely different when you are saying the words out loud. Yes, it is. It, it, it just changes your writing uh, in a very powerful way. I still edit the work later, and I'm sure some of it becomes more written word than oral, but the combination fascinates me, and I just love it. And Patrice, talk a bit about your writing in your head while you're walking. What, what is it like for you to do that? So I began writing Step Into Nature um, on my hand. I didn't have any paper with me, but I had a pen in my jeans pocket. And I started to write on the top of my hand. And the day that I got to my inner elbow, I realized I needed a piece <laughs> of paper. And so I started making little notebooks to carry with me. And um I wrote a really a significant part of the book because the way ideas and and emotions and connections are made while the feet are in motion and I talk about this in in the book is very different than the way thoughts come when I'm sedentary so when the when the view is completely changing then that gives me a kind of liberty for my thinking to not be stayed, for my thinking to be in flux. Um, the, the problem for me is coming home and, and trying to decipher what I'd written while walking. I can often not read um, what 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 I what I've I've read written uh, in my in, on the notebook. Um, I, I had an experience recently. I was up in the hill country. Uh, and I took a walk that I had not taken for a long time. And when I'd walked that walk before, I'd written a poem. And I'd written it phrase by phrase. And so I wrote a phrase in my head. And then I added the next phrase. And then I added the next phrase. And by the time I got back to the hotel at this country place in the middle of nowhere, I'd had the whole poem was in what just it's like what Tanya was saying i had i had written it for me i'd written it in my head and then transcribed it but so fast it was almost simultaneous and so while i when i took this walk a few days ago i um i tried to recite the poem from memory as i was taking the same walk and i i missed a few lines but i got most of it and um it, there's also something about memory that connects in when you, rem I don't even know exactly how to articulate that. It's, it's, 
but there's a big connection between place. Place gives us something. You know, there's this, and nature, and, and the city. I mean, I, 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 what Tanya was talking about walking in, in San Francisco, I've walked so many, I think years of my life have been spent walking in New York City. And, and, and there's walking, I know what you mean, Tanya, about walking in the city. It's, I just, I love it too. People, people perceive danger differently, but we are told all the time about danger. And especially as women, we're warned about danger. Um, and the dangers, even though they're really just potential dangers, but the dangers are very different if you're in a city versus in the countryside. Um, so, so in the city, obviously the dangers, the major ones, well, in San Francisco, if anyone's following the headlines, they know the really major one is crossing a street because <laughs> the, the pedestrian death rate is very high there because people just decided to stop following traffic laws, apparently, um, <laughs> but also from other people. So do you have you ever had and or do you continue to have any sense of danger, Tanya, about walking in the city? And what is it like? You know, it's interesting. I've I was mugged when I was a young woman in San Francisco and uh, it impacted me for many years. But I've moved on. And to be honest, now I feel no danger. And yes, people are crazy in the roads. I look very carefully in all directions. But once I do, I cross. And uh, this morning I was crossing the street and there was a man in a very fancy Porsche sitting, waiting for the light to change. And I put my finger up and waved at him and pointed to his car with a big hurrah kind of symbol. And he just beamed. And I love that. So when I'm in the city, I tell everyone if I think they have an attractive jacket on or if I like their smile I just talk to people. I, I think this fear of cities, it doesn't lend anything to life. I, I'm not saying there's nothing to be afraid of, but fear is sort of hopefully not part of my life and won't be again for a long time. How do you think you got past that being mugged and and as a younger person, what what do you think the process was to stop thinking about that, especially given that you've continued living in the same city? I know. Ironically, it took a long time. I was afraid to go to the corner. I checked every closet if my parents were leaving the house. And uh, then it just went away. I did move to Berkeley to go to college. Maybe that was the beginning. But somehow, once I moved past it, it went on. And that's kind of how I am about life in general. And um, it just, it worked. It's all yeah. I can say. Yeah. And do you feel like you, it sounds like in a sense, speaking to people and engaging with people is, I, I guess the word defensive doesn't quite fit because you're deriving joy from it, but it also is a mechanism mm. for you to create a safety around yourself. Yeah, that might be. Uh, I don't think of it that way. But now that you mention it, it certainly does create that kind of a feeling and environment. Uh, and I enjoy it thoroughly. And I've also learned that people get joy from hearing something positive. They look surprised at first, 
and then they beam. And I just love that. I imagine you walking around the city, spreading these little bits of joy around you. <laughs> I wish people could see your face while they're while you were saying that, because you were beaming oh. about it and just just thinking about all the people. So, Patrice, you although you grew up in you know walking in the city, now for many years have been walking in the country and don't often see people. When you do see people. What is your feeling about it? Well, it used to be when I saw men, I would be afraid. I'm never afraid of women. Um, but when I would see a man, especially a man walking alone, I, I, would feel, I would feel afraid. And I had this thing. I would turn my, my wedding ring so that the gem faced inside my hand, which was not good. Not, it wasn't meant to do anything. It was just this psychological device that I used. And, um, you know, after a long time of nothing bad happening, I think my fear got bored with me. <laughs> and it said, why, why am I going to stick around? You're not playing the game anymore. And so it, it just, it just went away. Um, I, have seen five mountain lions um, close enough that I would have been able to run to them if they had stayed still. But of course, they don't do that. And the first two times I saw them, I followed them like an idiot. I mean, <laughs> what in the hell was I thinking? But I just wanted to, I was just hungry to see them. And, and um, so I don't, I don't, I don't feel afraid. I'm not willing to let fear. I mean, there are plenty of things I'm afraid of in life, um, but I am not willing to let fear ruin my walks. Basically, <laughs> you know. Uh -huh. And I was mugged in the city as a, as a child um, in Chicago when I lived there. I um, I was almost mugged in New York City as a young woman, and. Um, I was followed by a group of men in, in a bad part of Brooklyn. Bedford-Stuyvesant was bad at the time. And these men followed me and taunted me. And I walked down into the subway unknowing that I was walking to, into a place where there was a tunnel that was about a quarter mile long and no one around. And the men did not follow me. And so, you know, that gave me something uh, very... Um, like the thing you think you're supposed to be afraid of maybe isn't the thing you're supposed to be afraid of. If self-doubt follows you into the woods and you carry its heavy burden, your imaginative ideas and dreams may lose their shine. I walk briskly through an industrial area called India Basin, passing less than a dozen people in half an hour. Finally, as I approach Heron's Head Park, a few dog walkers appear. They must have all driven here from other parts of town. You're listening to The Babelry, and we will be right back. 
Welcome back to The Babelry. I am speaking with writers Tanya Romanoff and Patrice Vecchioni, who both wrote books about walking. In the last segment, we ended on the question of fear, and now we start back up on the topic of Tanya's fearlessness. I also reconfirmed, far more powerfully than I could have imagined, that having this city to call mine is a gift. Every day I encountered strangers who touched me deeply and connected with me in unexpected ways. Past and present blurred as memories from 60 years ago when I arrived in San Francisco as a homeless refugee, merged with observations of the city as it is today. So, Tanya, I wanted to ask you, you have an unusual history. I feel like your history might have something to do with the person you've become and the person, the fiercely independent woman who does walk alone without thinking about it. Can you, can you talk a little bit about how you feel that your history might have shaped who you are? Yeah, I, I actually think that's real. I grew up in a refugee camp. Uh, moved to San Francisco, lived in a very tough neighborhood. But, you know, we didn't have any money. It never occurred to anyone that I shouldn't just walk across town because that's where I had to go to go to my Russian school. Um, And so I would walk through incredibly horrible neighborhoods and never think twice about it. And I got tough. Uh, And my family was also pretty tough on me. I don't know why. Um, But They were, and I was just determined to be a strong person. It started when I was young. I think my father was always terrified. He was a refugee twice in his life, spent four years in a refugee camp after being very successful uh, in his 30s. And he was always afraid that we would be kicked out of America. And I always said, I'm an American. I'm going to be successful. No more of this fear. Uh, so I think your question is actually very appropriate. And I'm so grateful to my father. I wish he was here so I could tell him that instead of just beat him up for it. <laughs> <laughs> where, where was the refugee camp that you were in, Tanya? It was in Trieste, which at the time was being fought over between Italy and Yugoslavia. And ironically, I'm heading back there and I'm writing a novel because the refugee camp was a concentration camp before we got there. And I am writing a novel and the heroine is going to be a woman in the concentration camp. Wow. And I'm learning incredible things, including the fact that my father was part of the military that freed Trieste from the fascists. So, Wow, what an amazing story. And it does explain your, your lack of fear, at least in part. Patrice, you, you work with children, mm-hmm. and children these days don't walk the way they used to. When my child walked to elementary school, he was one of a very few. People in our neighborhood would pile their kids in the car and drive them to school. This fear of stranger danger is very intense in amongst parents. Do you see anything in kids that you wish you could just let them go, set them free, and what would that do for them? You know, some years back, I 
took a group of first graders outside and on the play yard at, at a school. And I asked them to lie down on the ground and look up and tell me what they saw. And they, they did that. They followed the instructions. They looked up. And then instead of saying what they saw, they looked at each other and they made funny looks with their eyes. And they, then they said, Patrice, we see the clouds. And I said, I know you see the clouds, but what do you see in the clouds? White, puffy clouds. I said, okay, well, over here, I see a dragon biting its own tail. And don't you see over there the man with the pipe? And they slowly started to get the idea. But they're not familiar with the outdoors. And we are cutting off creativity by defamiliarizing kids with the outdoors, not just nature, but the outdoors in general. And we're defamiliarizing them with a sense of, of empowerment, that they're, that they're safe, they can move through space, and, and, they're, and they're fine. So I see we are, um, we're, we're, we're making a mess here. <laughs> and, and also getting the idea in children's minds that they're so fragile that, that they, they have to be protected. I mean, that's a very dangerous concept that you live in a world that is not safe. And um, I, I see children's creativity is definitely not what it used to be. And it, it's not just not going outside alone. There are, there's, of course, the whole screen. That, that when, when life becomes um, secondhand, Instead of firsthand, when you experience nature through watching the Nature Channel, we really, really have a problem. So something bad happens. Most things bad happen. They're not that bad. You fall down, you scrape your knee, or or somebody screams at you, or whatever. I mean, it's like, please get a grip. It's it's you know, it's the world is not an unsafe place. And, and, you know, Tanya earlier talked about joy, and I think we limit the capacity for joy in children and, and, and when they don't have a chance to interact freely with each other and move freely, walk to school, walk down the block. For me, my joy is triple fold or more than that when I'm able to be outdoors. Tanya, when, when you're outdoors, where does the joy come from? Well, it depends on where I am. It comes from many different places. In the city, a lot of it comes from the people I run into. But the other part about walking that gives me joy, and we've talked about this a little bit, is the writing. And when I did my pilgrimage, my writing was mostly about what I saw around me. But this morning, I was walking through the heart of San Francisco, writing about a woman in a concentration camp. And I enjoyed it thoroughly. It was like, that's where my head was. I was walking, I was looking around, but I was writing a book about something that had nothing to do with the environment. And still, I love that feeling of I'm getting the exercise, I'm exploring. And every once in a while, I turn off the button and look at someone and say, hello. 
<laughs> do you ever get looks about you talking into your phone or do people are just there at this point, they're probably immune I to that. I think people are pretty immune. And I confess, I go quiet when I'm passing someone. Uh, the streets are not that crowded. Now that you mention it, when I walk down crowded streets, I try not to talk into my phone because you do look like a moron. <laughs> so let's talk about this, um, this sense of creativity and where it comes from. And one of the things I want to bring up is the research that shows the connection between the cross-body motion of walking, which requires you to put your right hand and your left foot out at the same time and then reverse. And that this is amazing for the brain. And you don't have to be a brain scientist here, but, but just knowing that that motion is involved with creating creativity, give me, give me a theory as from from anywhere from religion to philosophy to whatever you want about why the creativity bubbles up when your body is doing that? Well, I think it has to do with um, being liberated from all the things that uh, trap us away from creativity. A sense of responsibility, a, a sense of um, duty, job, um, a wall can be really a hindrance to creativity because your idea can only go so far. I mean, I have a window. I look out a window when I'm, when I'm writing. Um, and I think what happens for me when I'm out walking is I become my most expansive self. And I am not necessarily that self. When I look up at a bookshelf and I see a whole bunch of books and I look around and I see dust on the, on the, on the shelves or whatever, I think there's something that goes on that, that you're talking about with the, with the movement of the body that allows us to make connections that we wouldn't make otherwise. And out of those connections that comes the most amazing thinking. I mean, there are other writers who, who've and, and thinkers who've talked about this. Dickens ta has talked about this. He was a night walker. Um, Virginia Woolf has, has written and talked about this. Einstein said if he had a problem and he couldn't solve the problem, he would stop pushing and he would go for a walk and there would be the answer. And, and that happens for me all the time when I, you know, not just with my creativity, but with a, a problem, something I don't know how to solve. And I go and walk and, and there it's as if the solution was on the street corner whistling, waiting for me to show up. I think for me, it has a lot to do with as I walk, your blood starts moving more quickly. Your body starts getting energized. The, the whole aura starts moving through you and your mind starts pursuing it. Uh, and I just feel that, that, yes, it's the physical walking, in addition to everything that's around you, that starts the mind moving. And then, you know, if you open up to what's around you, it, it starts getting really creative. And, you know, connected to that, I think, is breath. You know, when you're walking, you have to, I tend to hold my breath when I'm sedentary. And I know it comes out of 
difficulty from my childhood that if I want to be really small, I don't breathe. So that that's, of course, you know, a bunch of crap, but that's child thinking. Um, <laughs> and so when you're out walking, I mean, you're, it's, it's, you're, yes, like Tanya's saying, your heart, your blood, and you're breathing, and you're breathing, you have to breathe differently. So you're getting a lot more oxygen. And then the endorphins are going crazy, and the cortisol levels just drop off. I'm, I'm sure I have not had my brain tested while walking, but I'd like to do that. <laughs> Listening to you say that makes me feel so fortunate that I love to walk. <laughs> that is just wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Tanya, you alluded to the fact that your book you called a pilgrimage and the sense of a pilgrimage, you know, the background of humans is that until we had horses, we walked unless we were fabulously powerful people who got carried. We walked everywhere. And pilgrimages started in a time when people walked and then continued as a sense. People will say that they make a pilgrimage, you know, when they take an airplane trip somewhere. But really, we've, the, we, we have the sense that, that the true pilgrim, pilgrimage, the pure pilgrimage, is done at least at the end on your feet. So describe how what you did was a pilgrimage and first describe what you did. Well, I decided I would take a one-week pilgrimage. And every day I left my house near Giardelli Square in San Francisco and I walked in a different direction. And I realized that what I needed to do was walk back to where I grew up. And fortunately, that was all over San Francisco. So I walked between 10 and 15 miles a day, which I love to do. It was an all-day walk. And I would go to places that had meaning to me. And it was so powerful. I remember walking by uh, a, um, a monastery that my grandmother went to when we first came to America. And I hadn't seen that building in who knows how long. It was fabulous. I went to Stowe Lake in Golden Gate Park, where I used to go constantly as a little kid. I went to the beach out uh, on the west of San Francisco. I went out to Land's End, which is one of my favorite places in the city. And when I was a kid, it was so dangerous. People were falling off. And to walk there now and to look at it and to just let memory connect with reality. It was so special. And then when I, I met some people, I met a nun in a church near Mount Davidson because I wanted to go to the tallest point in San Francisco. And I had the most amazing conversation with this woman whose last name was Furia, which I didn't learn until we were finished. And I said, does that mean what I think it does? And she said, don't get on the wrong side of me. <laughs> and we just hugged. I said, me too. So it was Miss Furious. <laughs> Wonderful. Patrice, have you ever intentionally or unintentionally taken something that you would call as a pilgrimage? In, um, in 2015, I went back to New York City and was able to rent an apartment couple blocks from where I lived for my first eight years. And I went with a parcel of letters that my mother had sent my father during six months that he was living um, away from us. 
And uh, I decided to walk to all the places in the city that were a part of my childhood. And so I walked to Mother Cabrini School um, and Church where I went to, to school. I, I took a subway to Astoria um, where my father was a ch- grew up and went um, to my walk to my grandmother's house. I couldn't, couldn't walk all everywhere. I, sometimes I needed to be on, 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 on the subway. And I went to the Museum of Modern Art and looked, even though it's changed, there's still some, you can see some of the windows are this, in this looking out the same. And I took photographs and, and I went to the cloisters. I mean, I could, I, so yes. And, and often when I go back to New York, I, um, go to at least some of those places. Um, but that was the one time that I really was a pilgrimage. And I was reading letters that my mother had written my father just a few doors down from where I was um, sitting. It was really a remarkable, and my father had died a few months before. It was a remarkable experience. Traditionally, of course, a pilgrimage was a religious experience, but both of you mentioned connecting with your childhood. How do you think that the slowness of a pilgrimage and the connecting with your childhood worked? What what was it doing for you that made this a, a meaningful experience? I think one of the key things, and it's interesting you say slowness, and that is what happens. Life slows down as you remember who you once were. And then it becomes much more powerful because, you know, my parents have been gone from my life for a long time. And suddenly there was my mother walking with me through the park or my father fishing with me off of the pier. And all of a sudden life takes on a different meaning. Now, I don't happen to be religious, but I do believe that things can be spiritual and terribly important. And that's what pilgrimage, in a sense, did for me. It really just helped me free myself off of what felt like the captivity of COVID. Uh, It was fantastic. Yeah, I think that walking by its nature is slow. So you, you have time to make connections and process experience not only in the present tense, but you you can welcome in the past tense. And I remember standing in front of the building, the Educational Records Bureau was where my parents both worked. And and just like you're saying, Tanya, there was my mother. And when I walked to the library where my mother, you know, and, and I used to check out books, there there she was. So I walked to St. Elizabeth's, there there she was, you know, when I walked into Laguli, the Italian pastry shop and, and had a sfuyavel, there was not just my father, but my whole Italian family. And, you know, as you were asking the question, Suki and Tanya, as you were talking, I kept feeling my eyes welling up with tears because there, there is a profound sense of, um, for me, a need to, to bring the past into the present, but in a way that is liberated from the trappings that the past had, um, because I'm an adult and I'm free now. You are listening to The Babelry. 
We'll be right back with more Women Walking. It's plenty loud enough in my head. Some days, there's a crowd in there. Welcome back to the Babelry. I am speaking with writers Tanya Romanoff and Patrice Vecchioni about walking, memory, relationships, and creativity. In the near future after we made this recording, Tanya was looking forward to a trip to Trieste, where she lived as a refugee when she was a small child. Patrice is facing surgery to correct the foot that has kept her off her beloved hiking trails. In this last segment, we reflect on who we are when we're out on the street or in the woods and how we change as people along with the ever-changing landscape. In your book, Patrice, you wrote that the poet Wallace Stevens believed that reality is a product of the imagination. How is your reality a product of your imagination? Oh my God, what a great question that is. Um, my, I would be, I would be lost without my imagination. I really would. I wouldn't know who I was. I wouldn't, you know, the other day I started working on an essay about, um, about poetry and, um, I, I came to realize that poetry is my mother tongue because poems were something my mother read to me from the time I was an infant. And it was the imagination that allowed me to have that uh, realization, to make that connection. Um, And it connects to humor. It's just getting dressed in the morning requires imagination. And I mean, for me, I get so excited. Not, Not on days like today when I don't go very far, but on days when I have reason to actually put on more than my blue cashmere sweater. Um, It's like, oh my God, I can wear that shirt with that skirt? Oh, and those earrings? It's like, I don't know how, everybody has an imagination. Nobody, I, I, I don't think anyone doesn't have it. And I think the more, it's like a flame. If you blow on it, it gets bigger and bigger. Tanya, how is your? I love that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> How is your reality a product of your imagination? Oh, God. My mind is roaming all the time. I'm not sure that I, I, I try to keep mixing reality and imagination. But the harder part is bringing reality back uh, because I just love to wonder what's happening. Where did that person come from? What is she doing on the street? Did they come from Africa or India, or did they come from Los Angeles? And uh, then I start imagining what they're doing here. I just love it. (laughs) You know, you said a really important word, Tanya, that I want to respond to, which is the word wonder. And that is a crucial word. It's, It's a word directly linked to the imagination. I mean, it's wonder is a product of imagining. And that I wonder what, I wonder if, 
it's it's an open door into something you never ever considered before and i wonder more freely when i'm walking oh that's beautiful <laughs> yeah you're wandering freely and wondering yeah. freely exactly and i was thinking about <laughs> what you were saying about the children not going outside and creativity because and what Tanya was saying about looking at people and um, making up stories about them and that sort of thing, because really one of the things about walking is that it forces, it would be really hard to walk and be completely contained in yourself and not engaging at all. And I know that I see people who appear to be that way and it always makes me sad when I see someone who seems to be so closed off. And of course, there's a number of reasons for that. Uh, it could be anything from mental illness to having a really crappy day. And I know that there are days that I've had where I just, I, I try to, I try to turn myself inward enough that people know, don't talk to me. But of course, <laughs> the best thing is when someone, I come upon someone like Tanya who, <laughs> forces me out of that. But there's a lot of reasons why people might be contained in themselves. But really, when you're out walking and you come across people, even if they're not outgoing, you can tell that they are interacting with the world, whether they want to or not. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And you're right. When I see somebody who's completely self-contained, I always look at them a little longer because I can't believe they're just going to stay there. But some of them do. They just roll on by. Um, but most of the time you can catch their eye and at least sort of bring them back to the street at least. And isn't that so much what life is really about? Are these are these momentary connections that we make with strangers that they're they're life altering. I mean just smiling at someone who's who looks sad and then you see the smile on the, come to their face. I mean it's it's these little, little love affairs is how it feels to me that I just I couldn't have predicted. And it's it happens for me with with the the natural world too with with the the right now the plants everything's in flower it's just so remarkable and it's like I feel like oh my god the poppy let me fall in love with it by turning such a beautiful shade of yellow that if I stayed oh that's so sweet and if I stayed home I never I never would have known that. I've been racing through the poppies of San Francisco, <laughs> and I keep thinking about the ones in the mountains and saying, oh, my God, what would that be like? Well, you know, when I was away up in the mountains last week, um, I, I was in the foothills of the Sierras. I was would look at a hillside, and there would be a patch of yellow or a patch of blue, a patch of white, and it was almost like the hills had become quilts. It, it was. Oh, that's it was, perfect. It, it was a perfect experience. Did you see now that you can see those flowers from the satellite? Yes, I did. I know. Isn't that incredible? Well, yeah. So it's a super bloom. So why on earth would anybody not want to be out there walking in it? Exactly. <sighs> 
Except on the other hand, I'm like, no, not too many people, please. I know. I know that. <laughs> I did. I did and read, not in the flowers. Yeah. I did read that one place that got trampled last time has put up barriers oh. so that they can keep people from, from walking in places they shouldn't. I, I want to... I want to end this with a, a question, a theoretical question. I would like each of you to describe a walk that you hope is in your future. And mm. perhaps, Patrice, you can start because I know that your future, your near future is surgery on your foot, so you will not be walking. Um and perhaps you've been thinking about this because I know walking's important to you and you'll be off your feet for a while. Is there a walk that you think will, thinking about will sustain you through this? Well, there are two things that come to mind. Um, in October of 2020, I had reservations to go to Italy and I was planning on doing a pilgrimage uh, to see the works of one of my favorite artists, Piero della Francesca. And so I was going to go to various uh, uh, cities and, and see, see his work. So to walk in Florence and Arezzo and, 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 and San Sepulcro and these Rimini and shall I continue um, where yeah. his, his extant work is um, available to see. Um, so, so maybe that walk is in my future. I, I'd like to think that, but, but there's about a, a six mile walk at Fort Ord that includes a, a vernal pond um, that I think that's the walk that will um, sustain me when I'm unable to walk. Sometimes it's too painful to imagine what I can't do. And other times it um, is inspiring. So I don't know what it'll be like when I'm lying on the couch with my foot in the air. <laughs> <laughs> Tanya, what's a walk that you're looking forward to that, that you, you think about and you want to take? Well, I'm thinking right now about my trip to Trieste and walking through a city that as a child, I thought was probably awful because when we came to America, it was like, oh my God, you lived in a refugee camp. And then my brother finally helped me see that it's a wonderful city. And now I love it. I want to walk above the sea, along the water. I want to walk through the streets. I want to walk along the piers, along the canals. I just want to walk that city and I can't wait. Wow. Do you think you'll see the little girl that you were? Oh, my goodness. Thank you for saying that. I'm going to be looking for her now. What a beautiful thing to say. Thank you. Yes, I am going to see that little girl, and she's going to be happy. And Patrice, your, your little girl of the person you were, if you took her to that vernal pond, what would you hope? Oh, she, she would have see? no interest in that vernal pond. <laughs> oh, but you're gonna make her interesting. <laughs> no, no, right? no. The little no. girl I was would would she, she? I remember when we moved to California when I was eleven, and my mother would say, "Go outside and play," and I would say, "But ma, there's bugs out there. I don't want. I, where's the museum? Take me. I I miss seeing Leonard Bernstein concerts. I want to see the ballet. Remember when we saw the Pietà? 
Don't you remember the Mona Lisa? So no, the little girl in me, she she wants to she wants to walk in the city. She wants to go to Schraff's for lunch or, or you know, no. All right. So you're going to leave the little girl yeah, at home. Yeah, yeah, to, yeah. To yeah. She doesn't like to get and... dirty. She doesn't want her her dress messed up. No, no, no. Okay. She's going to love seeing you though. Well, that's that's perhaps. <laughs> Maybe you can imagine her being inspired if she came upon you. That's who I want to be. No, I don't think so. Sorry. No, <laughs> no she was very happy in New York. She, yeah. We don't have to stay who we were. We can we can change. And indeed we do, especially while walking because we never stay still, That's right? right? We're always going yes. somewhere new. When my father came for a visit, we walked together at Jack's Peak Park, a place I love and where I often walk. He did what I never would in a forest. He yelled at the top of his lungs. He was angry and fearful about what life comes down to when its end draws near. The boom of his voice made me feel protective of the forest, made me want to shelter it from his gruff sound. I tell you, the tree branches quivered. Why hadn't he saved his rant for my kitchen table? Though I wish he'd chosen another location, the boundless space gave him the room he needed to let go of a bit of his fear, for that is what his anger hid. After leaving the park, my father's spirit was a whole lot lighter. Take your sorrow outdoors and watch it change. A meadow is a good place to give in to tears, I know. The grass hasn't shriveled up from my sorrow's salt. Willa Cather wrote, The heart, when it is too much alive, aches for that brown earth. Yesterday afternoon, a couple sat on a bench before one of the most impressive views at Jack's Peak Park overlooking Monterey Bay. You could even see individual boats sailing on the water. When I said hello as I walked by, the woman kept her face turned away from me, but the young man half-heartedly returned my greeting. His eyes were two dark pools of grief. Whatever their trouble was, they chose to bring it into the woods. Though the trees can't undo what made them sad, I'll bet that like my father, they felt lighter when they left. I smile now and remember with joy all the people I met throughout the city and the smiles we shared. Ikjat, or God's Light, and his dog Love on Twin Peaks. Sister Angela of the Furies near Mount Davidson. On Stowe Lake, three Serbs from my mom's hometown. 
newlyweds who threw rose petals on me in Shakespeare's garden. Madi and PJ, who introduced me to the Green Belt Forest, and so many others. I keep replaying that moment with Tammy on the final day of my pilgrimage, when she told me ours was a divine meeting. She shared her deep wisdom and helped me understand the gift of my pilgrimage. I have moved from guilt to gratitude. There's not much more I could ask of a pilgrimage in search of myself. Patrice recommended the book Distant Fathers by Marina Jara, who writes, I always remain inside myself. All I know is how to walk. If only I could walk by myself, choosing my own dry path amid the lingering patches of snow. You've been listening to The Babelry. Thanks to Edith Frost for offering her song Walk on the Fire free for use on the freemusicarchive.org. Subscribe to The Babelry on all major podcasting platforms. Visit Babelry.com for links and information about this podcast. The Babelry is produced with support from KSQD in Santa Cruz, California.